Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we'll be finishing our look at our friends from Frolox 8. So I urge you to go back and listen to the previous three episodes where I examine the first 21 chapters of this very, very interesting novel. Uh, but basically, um, everything has come to this moment when Provoni, this uh, post-human who is betraying his own people, who are performed the ruling class on Earth for quite a while, he has left Earth to bring back an alien to disrupt the system and liberate the vast majority of humanity. Um, and everyone's been waiting for this to happen. The supporters of Provoni on Earth have been waiting for his return. The government has been waiting for this shoot a drop with the return of Provoni. Um, and basically at this point in the novel, we're just waiting for, for Provoni to arrive and to see what he's going to do to, to usher in a new era for, for humanity. Um, so that's what I'll say in recap because um, I want to save time to give my, my, my final thoughts about, about this novel. Um, but let, let's first let's go through the, the final bits of the plot, um, where the climax of this novel leads us. So um, in chapter 22, our, our two main characters, Charlie and Nick, are together. And um, much of this later part of the novel is set with Charlie and, and Nick with a few other supporters of, of the Provoni movement, supporters of the Underman movement, waiting watching news, deciding what to do. Um, Charlie, watching the news, keeps repeating that she wants to go to Times Square, which is going to be the place where Provoni is going to, to land. She wants to see his re arrival. She wants to be there at this, this grand historical event. But mostly they're watching the news reports. And I think it's really interesting in the later parts of the novel how the media is used here. Um, Dick uses it as a way to convey news to many characters who are dispersed, dispersed around the the world or, or uh, around mostly the united states um so they're using the media to do that but we're also seeing the media come to terms with the fact that that the government is failing around them and and uh you know and they go from being loyal to the government to being actually more objective reporters of of the media so anyways charlie and, and nick are basically hiding out they've been chased by by the secret police, despite a general amnesty being issued, the Graham, the head of the government, has singled out Nick for reasons of really jealousy because he's also, they're both in love with Charlie. So they're hiding out with others in the movement and they watch the TV and then they do indeed see the arrival of Provoni with uh, this huge alien, Morgo, who has engulfed his ship and he indeed has brought an alien with him. So any ambiguity at this point uh, among our characters about whether Provoni was going to come back. With help from Frolox 8 or another planet, uh, we, is, is, is abandoned. There truly is an alien with him. And they start to shoot, uh, or the, I guess the agents of the state, the army, starts to shoot large energy beams at the alien. And this only makes him larger and larger and larger. And he seems to actually be feeding off of the energy of, the, of, these, of these laser beams. This is part of his species, I guess, ability. And actually, at the end of this chapter, Thor's Provoni 
comes out of the ship, revealing himself, and he looks really ragged. He's he's been out in space for a number of years. He's unshaven. He hasn't had a bath. In fact, there was an interesting conversation they had earlier, Provoni and the alien, uh, about whether he should like they should drop off like in Kansas somewhere and first get a bath before revealing himself to humanity. But he decides to just go straight up to Times Square to reveal himself. He's basically wearing underwear. No weapons, um, just just him and this alien, and um, <clears throat> and these beams they shoot first at the alien and then at Provoni seem to have no effect. The alien uh, protects him, so that's that's what happens in chapter twenty two. Most of this is being told through the eyes of, of Charlie and Nick while watching while watching the media. In chapter twenty three, Provoni introduces Morgo, this alien, to the world. Um, and again, as they're watching the TV, this gang, Nick, Charlie, and these others are commenting on, on the events. And they comment on how Provoni is this great showman and how he is uh, advertising his arrival. You know, especially how he seemed to have everything planned. He came a little bit early. He, he bluffed the, the people on Earth, so they thought he was going to come a little bit later. But he came early, and they got this dramatic scene with the laser beam shooting at him so um it's 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 sort of impressing everyone um but then he also announces how he's going to defeat the post-humans who have dominated earth for generations and this is the key solution to the problem uh offered up by this alien morgo um and as i've said several times in this series dick in this novel is playing with different solutions to this autocracy this dystopia this political dystopia there's tensions within you know will it break down from the inside will actors from within the movement build or from within the state break it down or will tension within the state fracture it and that seems a true possibility thoris provoni could have worked from within inside he was a powerful post-human but he chose to go to the outside but we more importantly we see faction factionalism among the state actors themselves then we see the movement as culture itself, where we see growing distrust with these posthumans, the new men and the, and the unusuals, by more and more commoners. In fact, that's why we focus so much of this novel on Nick, because Dick wants to show how it is that a, a regular man who serves the state, who's loyal, turns his back on, on the system. And then we have, of course, the, the titular plot, our friends from Folex 8, this savior from abroad, the savior from another planet. Right. And we end up with the solution coming really from abroad. But this doesn't mean that the other solutions are are not adequate. They seem to have been solutions. And, and all three could have been the novel could have been written in any of the three ways, I think, and have been a realistic account of how the state is transformed or changed. Um, Dick just takes for the dramatic return of the alien uh, narrative for the reason. And this way it foreshadows. I think the Divine Invasion, a novel he's going to write later, which is much more clear on this idea that the state, the system is so powerful and so intransigent that, that only a, an outside force can, can dislodge it and liberate humanity. And I, I think it's a more pessimistic reading, to be honest. I, you know, my tendency would be to write a story in which the movement wins, you know, something like Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress or a story where we actually see the movement being successful, even if it's not pretty. Uh, but that's not the story Dick writes here, and, and we can't we can't blame him for for choosing a a, a novel for telling a story that that we that we would have written differently. So, anyways, how is this? How is 
Morgo, how are, are the Phylloxians and this one Phylloxian in particular going to shift the power dynamic on the planet? Well, it comes out that basically they give a lobotomy to every new man and unusual. What instead of raising the capacity of all people, which was actually something suggested by Barnes, one of the, the like the head of the secret police, who was saying at some point the system can't hold and we're going to have to open up government. And by doing that, we're going to have to open up capacity to more and more people. And maybe technology will do that. That was his solution. But instead, what Morgo brings is just a, a, a smashing of the post-humans. So what happens is the new men, they have their capacity destroyed and they just become basically uh, vegetables, not much more than vegetables. They lose almost all their mental capacity. The unusuals, they just become normal people. So they lose their abilities. So they don't become stupid. Uh, they just become normal people that don't have those powers anymore. So the new men are actually the most pitiable figure. And there's thousands of these new men and even some you know, low-level new men who maybe don't get into the state and don't get into positions of power but, but have those new men genes. They, you know, in fact, Nick's son is one of these characters. I don't think we get a clear um, description of what happens to him, but you know, he is technically a new man. But basically, these people are all lobotomized. Their their mental capacity is is taken away entirely, and they become vegetables, and they need to be cared for, right? And a lot of the later part of the novel is is a question of what to do with these these people, and that's actually how chapter twenty four, the next chapter, opens, which is people beginning to bait. You know, once this happens, it's basically the plot's over, right? There, there's just cleanup at this point. The state almost instantly falls as soon as um, Morgul implements his his mass lobotomy to the to the new men. It, it's you know, there is it instant? Does it kind of radiate out from Morgo? It doesn't really matter because you know, within a short period of time, there's this tit titanic shift in in power on Earth. Um, from the people who had it to the people who didn't. Now, the first question, though, that of that this kind of reborn old men society has to deal with, what will be the fate of these lobotomized new men? Who will take care of them? What will be, you know, their what will be their fate? You know, so who's going to feed them? There's going to have to be institutions for these people, and and they basically become a dependent population, um, which is. You know, they're the ones who fall the farthest of all the characters, it seems. Now, we're still getting much of this from the point of view of Charlie and Nick, who are watching the news. And Charlie still wants to go to Times Square. But um, Nick is is anxious to take um, Denny's squib. and Because and, Denny kind of supercharged his squib, and only he sort of knows how to run it. He's kind of uh, personalized his squib to basically his car. And, but Charlie wants to use it to go to Times Square and, and eventually coerces Nick into going, going with them or going with her to Times Square, taking Denny's squib with them. Um, now, before they do this, though, they, they almost make love. They almost, they almost have sex. And there's actually a discussion here about statutory rape because Charlie is 16 and, and Nick's older. He's married, of course. He just left his wife uh, in a previous chapter. And, and they almost make love, but he backs away from it. But they, they do get naked and, and, and move along that way. But instead, they just talk and, and they really dwell on this generational divide between them. You know, Nick's in his mid-30s, uh, as are many Philip Dick you know, male characters are in that age range. Uh, you know, Charlie's 16. So they kind of, after deciding not to go through with sex, they 
they kind of meditate on just how different they really are, in fact. And, and you know, there's a generational divide, just musically even. And Nick's trying to convince her to, like, listen to Beethoven. And Charlie has no interest in Beethoven. And she doesn't even have that much interest in music that, that was popular, like, in the 60s. 1960s, I mean. Well, I guess she likes Dylan. She likes Dylan, so that's that's the closest she gets to poetry. And, and there's a bit of a, a bit of sadness here about the the generational divide between these these two characters. Um, so they're while they're doing having this conversation, they're located by the police who are still after them, and they flee in Denny's squib. And during the chase, they don't really know how to operate the squib very well, and the ship is then shot down. Um, in chapter five, when um, Nick wakes up and he's rescued by a, a PSS officer. So he's arrested by one of the pissers, one of the secret police. But at this point, they don't care anymore. They, they've kind of abandoned their mission. There's no leadership anymore. The state's falling apart. And he, he kind of acknowledges to Nick that I'm not really going to kill you or arrest you or anything. I mean, the, the show's up as far as the state's concerned. And he does reveal, though, that Charlie has been killed pretty gruesomely uh, in the accident. Like, in fact, her head's been cut in half as she fell from from the sky, from the, the ship, from the squib. So it's, it's, it's a fairly gruesome death, and she's 100% done for. Um, during this conversation, though, he, he still doesn't trust the police, and he runs away. And the officer, though, does convince him that he doesn't really want to arrest him. And they go, he says, okay, I, I want to talk to this Graham. And remember, you know, in the previous section, we talked about how Graham had interrogated Nick and Charlie and, and become infatuated with Charlie, there was an interest in Nick as the everyman who supports the underground movement. And, you know, and then, then this led to Graham having the police pursue him because of his, uh, his love for Charlie. Uh, so he kind of wants to go and confront Graham at this point, who has, of course, been dethroned from his position of, of power. And so that's going to be the rest of the novel is essentially going to be um, Nick seeing the fate of those who are once in power. And, and so it's, it's the, the common man then finds himself in a position of equality or actually supremacy from these great post-humans who have dominated Earth for, for so long. So Nick convinces this policeman to take him to the federal building so where he can see, see Graham. Now, Graham isn't a vegetable. He's, he was unusual, so he just loses his ability. He can't read minds anymore, but he's still competent enough that he can sort of pretend to be in, in some position of, of power, but really he's, he's lost uh, whatever grasp, grasp he had. He just still has his office, essentially. So in Chapter 26, Nick's get, Nick gets in to see Graham, who, as I said, has lost his abilities. And Nick then confronts Graham directly, blaming him for the death of Charlie, saying, if you hadn't sent the police, they wouldn't have killed Denny. We wouldn't have had to run away in the squib, and Charlie wouldn't have died. And, and Graham who did have this affection for Charlie, even if it was in a really perverse way. And, and I think there's a comment here about power, that uh, sexual relations, you know, that are, can be corrupted by power the same way anything else can be corrupted and, and tainted. And whatever beauty there might have been in his affection for this, this, this woman, it would always have been, you know, shaded by the fact that he had power over her, right? It's kind of like if we want to think about the relationship between Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, you know, how, how, however much we might want to squeeze our imagination to imagine that as a, something that, it, you know, some affection there. They were together for so long. They had many kids together. But at the end of the day, she was his slave, right? And she, you know, 
I mean, we can't escape that, right? And that, that's the situation with Graham in any relationship he dreamed of having with Charlie. But now that he's basically on a position of equality with Nick, and uh, he, he realizes this, and he decides to call off the police um, against him, and realizing that the, the show's up anyways. And so that's the point where you get to this climax of the novel, is general equality has been, been reached. And that's the solution to a system based on inequality. I think it's a very, very simple thesis, actually, that um, in a world in which power is in the handful, hands of a few with power, whether that power is based on knowledge or uh, a perceived ability or could be race or gender, right? The, the solution is equalizing that authority in some way, right? And the way it's done in this novel is kind of pushing the elite down. Um, but it's not the only theory given out there. There is the model of empowering the people. There's the model of, of actually rising up through education or 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 as Barnes talks about it, and I think this was in the previous episode we mentioned this, the way Barnes talked about it was finding the contributions everyone can make. That it's not about just who has the biggest brain, right? There are contributions that all people can make, right? But we live in a system that values just a few skills, right? And, and the market only values a few skills. So those get uplifted and people with other skills tend to be, you know, don't have positions of power. We lose out on their skills. They become frustrated. Their capacity and their creativity is limited. And it, you know, it's, it's unfortunate for everyone, right? So I don't know if I like the solution entirely, the one that Morgo gives of just kind of smashing down the, the post-humans. But it's, it's, it gets, again, it's the solution that Dick chose for this, for this story. But in any, any way, we get, around, we get general equality, right? So Graham at one point, you know, accuses Nick of, of being dangerous. And Nick asks, am I? Is 3XX24J dangerous? By the way, that was his kind of prisoner name. Then six billion old men are dangerous too, and your black pissers aren't going to be able to hold them back. They're all undermen now. They've seen Provoni. They know he's back as he promised. They know your weapons can't hurt him. They know what his friends of Froelixen can do, has done to the new men. My broken arm is paralyzed. I couldn't pull a trigger anyways. Why couldn't you have left us alone? Why couldn't you have come to me and us be together? Why couldn't you let her come to me and be together? Why did you have to send those black pissers after us? Why? And then Graham has to admit that it was, it was jealousy. And Nick then concludes, if you continue to resist, if you insist on your position, you're going to be killed. The undermen will... They have the power now, and they're the six billion to the few, and there's no foundation for their authority over the six billion. So that's um, the, the game's over is essentially what Nick uh, says. So we got the final confrontation with not really with power because Graham's been disempowered in a way, but it is a rather bold, bold moment. And that's it. That's that's the the final speech that Nick gives to Graham. Graham then agrees to meet with with Provoni and he, he does talk to him over the phone and they seem to work out their um, you know some resolution politically to to the situation uh, Dick's not really that interested in it because he moves on to see what Nick uh, Nickel Appleton uh, goes to see the new man uh, Amos Ild now Amos Ild as we remember was one of the top new men he was actually the head of the project, the big ear that was going to take away jobs from the unusuals by 
basically reading everyone's mind, kind of a big program of big data that would, that would be able to zap into everyone's mind. So he was actually, for much of the novel, a threat to Graham in the position of the unusuals in general. But now he's been driven to the to the lowest of the low. He's a you know a vegetable entirely, and that's what Chapter Seven is. Chapter Seven is Amos Ild being visited by Nick, and Amos Ild is you know he's like an Alzheimer's patient. You know he he talks like a child. He can play with like little toys and things, but he he he's so far from where he was earlier. He has none of the abilities he had before. So in a way, the the one who's the highest up, the smartest of the new men, had the farthest to fall, I guess. And again, the final thoughts of the novel after this kind of painful conversation between Nick and Amos Ild is, is about the general equality of, of humanity. And here's what Nick says at the end. Um, Someday, I think every living thing will fly or anyhow trudge or run. Some will go fast like they do in life, but most will fly or trudge up and up forever, even slugs or snails. They go very slowly, but they'll make it sometime. All of them will eventually make it eventually, no matter how slow they go. Leaving a lot behind. That has been done. You think so? And he's having a little conversation with this a minor character. But the, I think it's one of these people who's taking care of the, the now incapacitated new men. And Nick, Nick's argument is that like this evolution will continue. And there's we're all going to go at our own pace. And all life is going to progress and improve itself and develop. And that's... But it, it, should be, it shouldn't be a justification for domination. I think that's what Dick is trying to say here at the end. That's, that's my, my guess. So that's the plot. That's the plot of Our Friends from Frolux 8. It's a, it's a fun read. I, it's, it doesn't have a lot of the Philip K. Dick elements you might be used to. It doesn't have uh, mysticism. It doesn't have alternate realities. It doesn't have androids. Um, it's, I think, his, maybe his final statement on posthumanism in that it's, I don't think he writes any other novels in which post-humans are so, are so dominant, right? And Dick's very interested in evolution, actually. It's, it's not a theme that's, I think, been studied as much as some of the others, like the robot stuff, the android, the, what's his human or what is real. Everyone talks about that. But he, he's interested in evolution. He wrote stories about the evolutionary throwbacks, right? Like if you remember from the simulacrum or from the crack in space where we see progress through the survival of, of, you know, early hominids, Neanderthals, or, or, or figures like that. Um, he's, of course, very, very interested in post-humanism through the, through the precogs and psychics and various post-humans, all the way back to some of his earliest, earliest tales. So he's very, very interested in evolution, and I think it's time that we acknowledge that, that Dick is trying to write something about, about evolution, and he's very much concerned about what evolution will mean for equality between between us that evolution seems to create conflict and inequalities and and how can we have systems based on equality and mutual respect and empathy uh, when there are these growing gaps between populations and we can just reinterpret this however you want you want to talk about in terms of development or you know GDP or, or military power or you know whatever right um, you know Brazil has just elected this, neo-fascist who, who see, seems to think that the indigenous people of the Amazon are, are throwbacks who should be removed or forced into civilization, right? There's not much that can be done in a kind of an evolutionary logic to stop that. Um, you know, but doesn't mean they don't have something to contribute. 
and they can't be part of our of our story. But when we see societies framed in terms of of domination, you're going to get domination, right? And and I think Dick really fears that, and he's in this novel, I think, trying to write about the consequences of of measuring success based on some arbitrary condition of power or authority or intelligence or, or progress. So overall, I think it's a good novel. It's worth reading. It, it's, again, not one of his maybe most famous novels. It doesn't fit into his common themes, but it, it's, it's an important one. And I think if you're interested in those um, kind of moral themes uh, about power, it's, it's one you really have to look at. And I, I think it's a good uh, preview, I guess, of things he's going to be talking about in the Vallis trilogy, particularly with the Black Iron, Iron Prison. So um, let's, let's just do a thematic recap of, of this novel, in case you're, you care about that sort of thing. Um, first, I'd say this, this novel is a, is, is, a, is a dystopia. Dick has written many dystopias, so categorize this in, in that. His dystopias tend to be based on a, a certain ruling ideology or, 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 or power, especially early on. He had relativism. He had uh, what was like a moral, moral reclamation in The Man Who Japed these kinds of states. Um, this dystopia is a little bit different and it's based on post-humans. And he's written about post-humans before, but he's never put them so clearly in a position of power over a government. Um, but I think he also sees states as conflicted. And I think one thing that's always going to set Dick away from other dystopian writers is that he sees these dystopias as, as quite fragile and, and, and tormented from within contradictions. And and that I think is important to remember. Um, I, my, you know, I, I I realize the importance of Orwell. If you listen to this podcast, you know I often like to contrast these two because for Orwell, power is so eternal and uncontestable, and, and resistance is sorry for the Star Trekism, but you know resistance is futile in Orwell's mind. I mean, I, I've read that novel in eighteen eighty four many times, and I don't see any any hope, any optimism at all. In resistance, there's no, there's no point, right? Resistance just ends up turning around, serving the state. Dick doesn't think that way. Dick does think resistance matters, at the end of the day, and that these systems are fragile and can be overthrown. And I don't think any of his true dystopias hold out till the end of this novel. There's not. I mean, I guess people like to think he's pessimistic, but as often as not, at least, at least, that's a coin flip. Uh, I, I would say most often we see these states collapsing, whether it's the penultimate truth or the simulacrum or solar lottery, man who japed, world Jones made. These are all dystopias that fail. So um, let's, let's not see him as too pessimistic here. Uh, obviously, this is a story of posthumanism, uh, one of his most complete stories about the posthuman. Uh, he's got the new men and the unusuals, the precogs, all these posthumans are, are quite active in the story. We get some of our best, I guess, fully developed post-human characters in Barnes and Graham and, and Amos Eld as well. One thing I like about this is it talks about resistance um, and it talks about movement cultures. And yeah, Dick kind of parrots the drug culture and the, you know, the, the kind of the 60s hippie communities with the resistance movement here but you know especially like the cordon literature is is obviously a metaphor for drugs in, in almost every way that said though i think this is a, a fairly interesting description of a, of a movement culture um tied to that obviously the drug culture is is here um 
drugs are freely available in bars, um, pills. Alcohol is illegal. And the underground illicit market is partially alcohol, but also this coordinate literature, which people take as hits almost. $5 hits, $10 hits. They read it for the high. They read it for the excitement. They, it's, it's not even fully political in a lot of cases. Um, just generally, aid from, a, aid from above, aid from within, or resistance. What's the model for overturning an authority? Um, I've just, I just talked about that, though, so I won't repeat it. But obviously, that's a theme here. And it's, it's a way I think we can talk about all of Dick's work and kind of categorize these ways of resisting the state. And in, in, in this case, salvation eventually comes from abroad. And you know, I'm not happy with that. Many readers may not happy, be happy with that. But I think that's a minor quibble in the story because he does fully flesh out other options for us. For whatever reason, he liked this idea of these aliens coming and kind of leveling the playing field. Um, we have marriages here, um, especially the marriage between Nick and his wife, which is presented not at all positively. It's very banal. Uh, his wife, Cleo, which was the name of one of Dick's wives, is presented as a shrew, uh, not very creative, very defensive of her family, not open-minded to the changes Nick is undergoing. She's a throwback as well. Uh, Nick is someone who is capable of evolution, and, and his wife isn't. So he has to leave her. It's pretty brutal when he leaves her because in a way you could say she's not really doing anything wrong. She's protecting her family, you know. But she's presented here not very positively. And that, that may be an unfortunate, one of many unfortunate depictions of, of women we have in this, in, in Dick's work. Um, the young woman, this is more of a, a trope than a theme, but we see it again and again in Dick's fiction. Um, the, the young attractive woman maybe she has mental problems maybe she doesn't but uh some young person who inspires an older person in a way uh we have the theme of big data here especially with the big ear project being pursued by amos ild this idea of, of basically creating a surveillance state that can read everyone's mind without that they have to rely on the unusuals who also have their own kind of way of approaching the theme of big data and then we also have the theme of empathy here, it's, I guess it's not a dominant theme, but it comes off in the end of the story when the very first think thoughts of the old men when they realize the change they've experienced with the laying low of the old men and the or the new men and the unusuals is what are we going to do with these vegetables? How are we going to care for them? And they create places for them. They basically create homes, asylums. And in a way, it's kind of almost a twist because the old men were being put in prison camps. Now the new men laid low are being put in essentially nursing homes, but the this it's for different reasons, right? In the one case, it's based on power and control, and in the latter case, it's based on on empathy and and caring. Um, so those are the themes I picked out. I'm sure there's a lot more we could talk about, but that's all I I want to say about our friends from Full Ox Eight for now. So um, again, a, a good novel, really worth worth reading. Uh, maybe not a top 10 of Dick's novels, but if I think if you want to understand his full perspective on a lot of issues, you need to approach this, this story. Okay, so what's coming up next in the Philip K. Dick uh, book club? Well, we got a short story to look at, uh, Cadbury, The Beaver Who Lacked, which was published posthumously, but it's collected in his collected stories. So we'll, we'll look at that next. And then we'll jump back into the novels. There's not many short stories left, actually. I think there's only a 
eight or nine short stories left for us to look at, but we still have a, a quite a, about that many novels before we get to, um, you know, 1982 and Dick's death. So uh, we'll look at Cadbury, the Beaver Lacta one episode, and then we'll jump to uh, We Can Build You. Now, we Can Build You was written earlier in the 60s, and it was published in 1972. It is, in a way, a, a prequel to Do Andrew's Dream of Electric Sheep. You have, it's clearly the same universe, or there's strong suggestion it's the same universe as Do Andrew's Dream of Electric Sheep. It's set in 1982. But it's, it's not really about robots. It's not about the themes of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. It's, a, it's, a, it's about mental illness. And I think it's his final, one of his final statements on the theme of mental illness, another major theme of his, his work. So I really look forward to, to talking about We Can Build You uh, with you. Uh, so that was published in 1972. Um, Dick's publications are going to be more spread out from, from now on. Um, so that's that's it. Our friends from Full Lux Eight, nineteen seventy, good novel. Uh, so if you, if you've read this novel and you have your own thoughts, are there any themes I missed? Are there any interpretations that I get wrong? Is there any point of view that maybe you would emphasize differently? Please, please, please let me know. You can send me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail dot com. Um, and I'll see you next time with uh, Cadbury the Beaver who left. Feel these changes happening in me